you trust and why? Who do you trust and why? Who do you trust to share your deepest secrets and your most passionate desires with? Who do you tend to tell some very important information to and you tell them to keep it confidential? Well, let's even get more personal. Who do you trust to share your darkest moments of sin with? You know, those hidden skeletons in the closet. Those poor decisions you made many years ago or even foolish decisions you've made just this past week. And you're feeling uneasy and really ashamed this morning. Friends, who do you trust to speak the truth and love to you and not flatter you or lie to you or be passive aggressive with you or even talk unkindly and unfairly behind your back when you're not there? Who do you trust to give you advice when you're unsure on a decision you need to make? Who do you trust will comfort you and calm you down when you're anxious and afraid about an upcoming meeting or deadline? Brothers and sisters, who in your life today do you trust will tell you what God's word says? In answers to your questions, more than simply spewing out their own opinion. To that end, God's word is certainly not silent on this matter of what it means to be trustworthy. For example, consider the proverb that highlights the contrast between a gossip and a trustworthy person. Proverbs eleven thirteen says, Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Or think of even the advice that Moses received from his father-in-law Jethro back in Exodus 18 when he saw that Moses was on the verge of burning out and getting worn out from shepherding thousands of Israelites who were deeply stubborn towards him. Exodus 18.21, this is what Jethro said to Moses. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And that's precisely what the Apostle Paul teaches as a principle for local church pastors in the New Testament. Men who are pastors that want to be faithful and fruitful must see it as a top priority in their ministry to pray for, to identify, to surround themselves with, to equip, and then commission faithful and trustworthy kind of men for the work of pastoral ministry. Listen to 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. It literally means trustworthy, who will be able to teach others also. And likewise, all Christians, with our stewardships from God, are called to that same calling. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful, or again, it can be translated trustworthy. And then, of course, we must consider the core characteristic of a Proverbs 31 woman. The description of a virtuous and God-fearing woman that personifies 
Heavenly wisdom as a wife and mother echoes the same truth. Proverbs 31, verses 10 to 12, an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. And why does he trust her? Verse 12, she does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Friends, throughout our lives, who we decide to trust is a vitally important decision. Scripture is abundantly clear. We should keep our hearts with all vigilance, for from our hearts flow the springs of life, Proverbs 4.23. And one application to guarding our hearts is by protecting our hearts from untrustworthy people. That could be the adulterous man or the adulterous woman. This could be a drunk or a drug addict. It could be the greedy and dishonest businessman. It could be the gossip among women at the hair salon or men who debate about frivolous and fruitless things over coffee at the local diner. It could be the teenage kid who is abusive or a bully to others at school. It could be the secular music and ridiculous amounts of movies out there that brainwash our kids with an anti-Christian worldview. Friends, everywhere we turn, with a click of a button or going out into the world, there are scores of influences that our hearts should be guarded against. And therefore, you and I should not trust people lightly or ignorantly. Now, with that said, we should not live in constant suspicion of every person we meet. Newsflash, if you do that, you will have very little friends and be invited to very little Christmas parties throughout your whole life. In fact, you might not have any friends at all if you're suspicious of everyone. If that's your MO, you might need to be suspicious of yourself. Friends, as Christians who are sinners saved by the grace of God, we should certainly believe the best about others if there's no credible reason for us not to trust them. Isn't that what true love is? 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 1 Corinthians 13, 7. But the truth of the matter is this. When we share our lives with another person, we share our lives with a group of people. Friends, it's showing to some degree or another, that we trust them. We are deeming them as trustworthy to share our lives with. We may never actually say the words, I trust you, or you're a trustworthy person, but our actions always show who we think are trustworthy. Friends, as much as we want to find trustworthy people to be friends with, trustworthy pastors to sit under, trustworthy spouses to be married to. Friends, those are wonderful things to pray for and look for, but we should also put our mirrors back on ourselves. When we look into the mirror, we should ask ourselves, are we trustworthy? Do others in my life look at me as a trustworthy man or woman? So what makes someone trustworthy? One word, character. 
character. What is character? It's tried and tested integrity. Tried and tested integrity. So friends, that begs the question, who are you trusting in your life? And would God approve of the people you've chosen to trust? If you have a copy of God's word, please open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 127. Last week, we began a four-week sermon series to the book of Ruth. In case you weren't able to be with us last Sunday, you're more than welcome to listen to that sermon from Ruth 1 on our church podcast later this week. Today, we turn to Ruth chapter 2. Please follow with me. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. And Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or or leave this one, but... Keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me? since I am a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, 
Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. And she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went to the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. This is God's word. Here's the big summary statement for this morning's sermon. It really summarizes what we're going to find out. Who we decide to trust will shape the decisions and direction of our lives. Who we decide to trust will shape the decisions and direction of our lives. Who we decide to trust will shape the decisions and direction of our lives. Friends, who we decide to trust is going to shape the decisions we make today that could have a profound effect on where our lives are in the years ahead. Uh, Friends, that's true for us, and that was certainly true for Naomi and Ruth as we'll continue in our study in this book. In Ruth chapter 1, we entered into one of the darkest seasons of life for a woman named Naomi. Naomi really takes center stage of focus in chapter 1 as she loses almost everything that meant something to her. Over a 10-year period, she lost her home in Bethlehem as she followed her husband's leadership to move to the neighboring land of Moab. And what was the initial cause for the move? According to Ruth 1, verse 1, there was a devastating famine in their homeland. Food and work were evidently drying up to be able to survive there. So they decided to leave and move away to the east, beyond the Dead Sea, outside of the land of Israel. Now, whether it was wise or foolish, noble or suspicious for them to move from Bethlehem to Moab, only God knows. We're then told that at some point, without any explanation of the causes or events 
that her husband, Elimelech, dies. Just a few verses later, her two sons, Malon and Kilion, they die too. And once again, no explanation, no autopsy, no surrounding events, no news reporters to cast why and how to Elimelech, her husband, or her two boys. Now Naomi faces a crossroads of a challenge. On the one hand, she catches word that the Lord has revisited her hometown by stopping the famine and replenishing the land in mercy with food. So what's the challenge? The challenge is this. She thinks it's time to move back to her homeland. And her two daughters-in-law want to come with her, at least initially. But through a tearful, heart-wrenching, family disagreement, eventually a tough decision had to be made. Orpah decides to listen to Naomi's bitter plea to leave and start over her life back in Moab. She weeps. She hugs Ruth. She hugs Naomi. And she says goodbye. But despite Naomi's emotional plea for Ruth to go back to Moab and start her life over again too, Ruth is determined to stay. She has resolved to stick closely to Naomi and she has resolved to start trusting in Naomi's God. Ruth said in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Friends, that was one of the most powerful things we learned from last week's sermon. God used Elimelech's maybe wise, maybe sinful decision to go to Moab. Ten years elapse, three deaths occur, and a bitter, grieving woman can't see the goodness of God in suffering, and yet God uses her lousy, faithless, bitter witness, her suffering, to draw Ruth to himself. Friends, God can use unjust suffering God can use unexplainable suffering. God can use the darkest, most wicked, most ridiculously unrighteous forms of suffering to still draw people to himself. Friends, Ruth chapter 1 opens up a whole can. It says that God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. He's been doing it for a very long time and he still does it today. Ruth chapter 1 ends in a strange way. It's, it's a timely providential season, but it's mixed with a tapestry of sad emotions and hopeless thoughts. Naomi has insisted that people call her by a different name. She, you know, she went over to get her driver's license changed and said, hey, don't call me Naomi anymore. It means pleasant, but trust me, I'm not pleasant. Call me Mara. Change all the documents. Call me the one who is bitter. You see, Naomi, she's a broken and grieving woman. She's a bereft woman who's been emptied and destitute of God's blessings in her life, so she thinks. 
She's a deeply embittered woman who doesn't deny God's existence, who doesn't deny God's love. She just thinks and believes that God loves everyone except her. Everyone else is being blessed. Everyone else is prospering and advancing in life, but somehow God's frowning providence of thunder and lightning is her lot in life. So how does chapter 1 end as we lean into chapter 2? Look back with me at Ruth 1, verse 22. Ruth 1, verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Chapter 1 begins with a famine and ends with the beginning of a harvest. Chapter 1, Naomi has lost a husband, two sons, ten years of her life, and one daughter-in-law. But now as we open the door to chapter 2, she's back home. And she's not alone. She may feel like God has abandoned her. She may feel that God is out to get her. But beloved, God has not revealed everything to her of what he's doing in her life. And friends, we should not lose heart either. When we can't see everything God is doing in our life for our good and our ultimate joy and our ultimate satisfaction in him, when we can't see it, God is not revealed to you or to me his perfect and good plan that he is doing. Romans 8, 28, we read it last week. And we know, it's not an assumption, it's a confident belief, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. You can bank your soul on that promise. Or we can remember William Cooper's favorite hymn, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. So here in chapter 2, we begin to see the first rays of God's shining and smiling face upon what he's been doing in Naomi's life all along. And specifically, we're going to see God's kessid, his faithful love and his covenantal care through the lives of two individuals in particular. Two individuals, an older man and a younger woman. And both of them fear the Lord. Both of them trust the Lord. And both of them show God's committed love to the people God has put in their life. In Ruth chapter 1, Naomi was the key focus on the center stage, humanly speaking. In Ruth chapter 2, who should we be paying attention to? Who does God use to show off and display his steadfast love and redeeming grace? If you're taking notes, I have three main points for the sermon. The first two I'm going to give you up front. The third one's at the end because it's the shortest and the sweetest. Point number one. We should pay attention to the valiant character of a God-fearing man. We should pay attention to the valiant character of a God-fearing man. Point number two. We should pay attention 
to the virtuous character of a God-fearing woman. We should pay attention to the virtuous character of a God-fearing woman. And really, these two points, they're going to kind of blend all throughout this chapter and next week's sermon and the next week's sermon. And friends, what we're going to find is this. God is working in the most unlikely and unpredictable of ways. So first, we should pay attention to the valiant character of a God-fearing man. In Ruth chapter 2, we're introduced to a man named Boaz. Let's just say it loud together to wake us back up. One, two, three. There's a hilarious Instagram video that my dear friend Sid sent to me. It's gone viral, by the way. If you come back tonight for the kids' party, me and Avery are going to try to sing it together. Don't keep the bar very high. Keep it low. Anyway, Boaz is mentioned in that video. In this particular chapter, we learn quite a bit about Mr. Boaz. He's a relative of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. In fact, in verse 20, he's a close relative of the family. And that means Naomi knows who he is. He's not a stranger. She knows what he's like. She knows a little bit about his background. He's not a total stranger, and and probably they had fond memories together. Maybe at family events, maybe at different feasts, the annual feasts that the Jews would go to, from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. We know from verse 4 that Boaz is from the same hometown as she and her deceased husband, Elimelech, and that's the town of Bethlehem, verse 4. So what was Mr. Boaz like? What makes him all that special? What makes him noteworthy for us today in 2022 to pay attention to? What is significant about Boaz entering into Naomi and Ruth's life at this point in their journey? Well, beginning in verse 1, we get to see several insightful and noteworthy traits about Boaz. Look with me at verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Uh, Several of our English translations may say it this way. Boaz was a worthy man. Boaz was a man of great wealth. Or Boaz was a prominent man of noble character. The phrase, a worthy man in Hebrew, literally means a mighty man of valor. Uh, That could describe a man who is of great worth, strength, wealth, or skill. Uh, This could refer to powerful military valor, or he could be someone who has a high status in society, like a tribal leader or a respected elder. It could also describe he just had a lot of money. Uh, He had a lot of land. He had a lot of property. He was a wealthy gentleman. And we know from the remaining portions of the chapter that Boaz is probably a little bit of all of it. In other words, he's the total package. He's a man's man. More than that, he's God's man. You'll notice in our passage that Boaz is wealthy and very well respected in the community. According to verse 3, if you look down there, Boaz owns a field where he harvested things like barley. So if you just kind of glance down, I'm going to help you think through how you study narratives, you'll see rhythms and repetitions throughout the book we're not going to stare at forever, but just listen to these. And in verse 5, 
verse 13, verse 15, and in verse 21, Boaz doesn't just have a field. He has young men who work for him. He has young men who are like foremen or supervisors. And then under them, he's got servants that are under those supervisors, under those foremen who work for him, who harvest his field. And then in verse 8 and in verse 22, we also see that he has young women who work for him as well. And they're collecting and gleaning among the sheaves in this field. But what we should take notice of the most was not his wealth, but his love for God and his love for others. In verse 4, we get a sneak peek into the godly reputation and spiritual maturity, listen, that Boaz displayed even amongst his employees. Look at verse 4 with me. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, basically those who worked for him, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Friends, it's probable that you read over that text in your quiet times and didn't linger long enough. Let me show you. We see four things revealed about Boaz's character in one verse. Four things revealed about Boaz's character in one verse. First, Boaz was a man who genuinely trusted in the presence and power of God. Boaz was a man who genuinely trusted in the presence and power of God. Boaz reiterates to his workers, his reapers, that God's presence is with them as they work in the field. The Lord be with you, he said to the young men and young women. He was basically greeting them, so he was kind. He saw people as real people, and he prayed over them. He blessed them by declaring, may the Lord strengthen you and enable you to be successful in all your endeavors today. Froaz, friends, Froaz, friends, Boaz saw his work and the work he hired others to do as work that was dependent on God every task he was given. Friends, Boaz welcomed God in the workplace, as he reminded others who worked with him of God's presence in their work. Friends, regardless of what our nine to five is or what our Monday through Saturday looks like, we all should start the day, and I would say throughout the day, with earnest dependence on God in prayer. Do not be afraid to pray in your car, in the lobby, as you walk by the sobbing coworker that looks like their life fell apart, put your hand on them and say, can I pray for you? Send that email to your boss. Looks stressed out of his mind at the end of the year. Hey, how can I pray for you, boss? Number two, Boaz was a man who was unashamed to declare his trust in God. 
Boaz was unashamed to declare his trust in God. Notice this. He publicly, verbally, and boldly declared his trust in Yahweh. Even in the workplace, with all his foremen and servants present day in and day out. In other words, he didn't compartmentalize his faith. He didn't have a quiet time with Jesus over coffee in his living room and then somehow leave Jesus at home when he went to work. That's why I always have fun when people say, I had this amazing quiet time with Jesus this morning. I go, that's wonderful. Where did he go when you went to work? Did you put him in the closet? Did you, did you say, Jesus, I'll come back to you tonight? No, friends. <laughs> we don't leave our Christian faith some, some quiet quiet time with you know angel figurines and air-conditioned building or heat building and just leaving there no no it's it's a daily communion with Jesus all day every day the morning is just the kickoff we're just starting with Jesus every day friends Boaz didn't compartmentalize his faith in Yahweh he made it known verbally boldly and publicly Friends, he wasn't a respected Christian at work, but a heartless pain in the neck when he got to work. Friends, Boaz wasn't some bold and passionate believer at Bible study and then turned into a cowardice chameleon in the break room or in the boardroom or the lunchroom at school. Boaz didn't leave the Lord at home when he went to work or out into the world. He continued to trust. He continued to fear the Lord because he knew the Lord went before him. The Lord is with him, and he continued to make that publicly known. Friends, everyone who worked under Boaz and with Boaz knew that man loves God. That man believes in this God who's given us this harvest today. That's a man worth trusting. Friends, let me ask you a question. And I ask the same question to me, regardless if I'm a pastor or working in the cleaning business. Do others in your school or your homeschool co-op or your hanging out with friends at the local diner or coffee shop or the running club or the bike club or the garden club or whatever your place of employment might be, Do others in those venues, not here, those venues, know you as a devout follower of Jesus Christ? Emphatically, without hesitation, clearly. I disagree with that man. I disagree with that woman, but you cannot question they follow King Jesus. Would other people say you were unashamed of the gospel out there? Or would people be surprised to find out later that you are a Christian from what they've been watching all week long from your life? Thirdly, Boaz was a well-respected and appreciated by those who worked under him. Boaz was well-respected and appreciated by those who worked under him. Did you notice the reapers? They're not afraid of Boaz. You know why? Because he's a loving man. He's worthy to respect. Notice how they respond back. The Lord bless you, Boaz. In other words, Boaz, may the Lord cause you to be successful. May his favor shine upon you and your company, you and your church, 
you and your school, you and your medical practice, you and your law firm, you and your real estate business. May the Lord continue to be the love of your life and bless you with health and strength and favor and an abundant harvest. See, it appears from their words of blessing Boaz back that they loved him. They enjoyed being around him. And they enjoyed working for him. Brothers and sisters, if you work in any form of management or leadership, in any type of sphere in your life, whether here at the church or in the workplace, where others are under your authority or supervision, we should aim to be loving and respectful to those who God puts in our life. Whether that's an elder or a Bible study or a service team, when everyone's serving with one another or we're growing together in some shape or form, we should aim to be a blessing and a joy. I remember back in college, this kind of cheesy cliche that I think I quoted like all the time, and it's biblical, it's useful, it just gets kind of cheese after like 20 times. When someone says, how you doing? You know, I'm too blessed to be stressed. Well, pfft go out into the real world. But I did like this. I've been super blessed by God. I want to bless others. If you are blessed, you should be a blessing. And friends, that's what Boaz is doing. He's just a walking blessing machine. People want to be around him. People appreciate him. People respect him. Now, let me qualify this. We shouldn't aim to be people pleasers or approval junkies either. You can't make everyone happy in the workplace. You can't make everyone happy in this church. You can't even make everybody happy in your own family. Newsflash, Jesus did not come into the world to be everyone's best friend. In fact, even amongst his 12, he only had three that was his closest. Friends, if we see that in Jesus, he didn't come to please man more than he came to please his heavenly Father. We should be the same. We should all aim to fear the Lord and may the fruits of the Spirit that God bears in our life be a blessing to everyone around us. We should facilitate even in this church and cultivate ministries here at CCBC where members love to serve and members are eager to invest in one another's lives. And as your pastor, I want to encourage you. I see that. Here we are two plus years in as an official church. I do see an eagerness to serve. I do see a joy and a desire to invest and do spiritual good in one another's lives. Friends, we should pray that every member has that same eagerness. Every member has that same joy. We don't want to live by the 80-20 rule. You know that rule? 20% of the people are basically doing 80 to 100%, and 80% of the people are doing nothing. Friends, pray that every member of this body serves with joy and invests into the ministry and other people's lives with eagerness and sincere brotherly love. Friends, Boaz is a wonderful example of a servant leader. He was a man under authority, God, before he saw himself as one 
in authority over others. Friends, Boaz was a rare diamond in his day. You know why I just keep beating this drum on one verse? Remember the context. When was the book of Ruth, at least contextually, written and going on? It was when the judges in Israel ruled. And what did we learn last week? What was going on in their culture? Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Friends, Boaz is a walking, talking contradiction. He's not a man that just goes with the winds of the culture. He's not just trying to be everybody's buddy. He's there and he's fearing God. He's loving others. He's a blessing to others. And he's doing it because he fears the Lord. He's not operating his business simply when what's right in his own eyes. He's not leading Christ's church simply in what seems right in his own eyes. He's a man by the book to lead people to the God of the book. Uh, brothers, this is the guys come in here. This is kind of like our team huddle, you know. Boaz is a good challenge and a gut check for us, okay? So I've been staring at the text for 20 hours this week. My gut's been checked quite a bit. <laughs> He's given me a left hook and a right hook. I'm back in the ring. Here we go. Here's a good question for us. What does it mean to be a man's man? Now, notice this qualification. What does it mean to be a man's man according to God's definition? What does it mean for a man to be completely captivated and saturated with love for God in his life? Listen to John Piper. Great quote. If you want to know a man's relation to God, it helps to find out how far God has saturated him down to the details of his everyday life. Brothers, pray that every man in this congregation and every young boy in this congregation grows in what it means to be a God-saturated man. That means there is no compartmentalization of his faith. He is the same man on Sunday that he is on Monday. He's the same man on Monday that he is at Thursday night at 9 o'clock. And friends, we desperately need your prayers. So ladies, pray for the men. Pray for your pastor. Pray for the elders that we be God-saturated men. I know there's areas of my life where God has not saturated yet, and I want him to. Pray that we all would be more saturated, even in the details of our life. Fourthly, much quicker because that's the rest of the story, Boaz was a kind and generous man in caring for those who were in great need. Boaz was a kind and generous man in caring for those who were in great need. How do we know this? We know this because of the care and love he showed to desperate widows. And one of those, Ruth, just happened to be in his field. So when this godly man, this diamond in the rough, 
This man's man, according to God's definition, meets Ruth, this Moabite, who's come to Bethlehem. What does Boaz pay attention to in her life? Which leads to point number two. We should pay attention to the virtuous character of a God-fearing woman. Throughout Ruth chapter 2, we see several commendable and praiseworthy characteristics in Ruth's life. First, Ruth was a woman who trusted God and put her faith into action. Ruth was a woman who trusted God and put her faith into action. Look with me at verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him and, and whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Here we see Ruth take initiative. She's not procrastinating. She's not wasting time. She takes initiative as an act of faith, looking for work, but not knowing the final outcome. She doesn't know what field she's going to end up in. She doesn't know if she's going to be successful in her attempts. She doesn't even know for certain if she's going to find favor in another man's eyes. Nonetheless, her faith was in God. And she left the outcome to him. Remember the context here, guys. Don't, don't overlook this. Ruth has a lot going against her in this culture. She's not from Bethlehem. She's from Moab. She's from a pagan land where God's enemies historically lived and fought against Israel. Friends, that's way bigger than some kind of OU and Arkansas rival. I don't even really know if that's a rival. But Alabama, Auburn, I mean, pick your, 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 your teams. We're talking blood-spilled enemies. She's from there. She's from those parts of the tracks. We might say even here today in Fort Smith, when someone moves in from another state, we call them, or some in this community call them, outsiders of the Fort Smith community. Even if you've lived here for years and years, and you deeply invest in untold amounts of people, you are still not going to be looked at as one of us. And Ruth is certainly fitting that bill. She is considered an outsider, a foreigner. Notice also she's a young woman. And in this culture and time, this would have made her vulnerable, put her in imminent danger to be assaulted or raped by a creep and an ungodly man. Friends, that means that what Ruth is doing is not only an initiative-taking act of faith. But listen to this. It's risk-taking acts of faith. It was dangerous for her to go out into the unknown. She's a young woman, and she's a foreigner. And friends, notice this. She's not a queen either. She doesn't have a high-paying job. She, she doesn't have this long history of well-to-do people to vouch for her. She's not some CEO or high-status person. Verse 13 says she viewed herself as a lowly servant. And yet Ruth, 
does not let cultural stigmas and fearful circumstances get in her way of trusting God. Let me say that again. Ruth does not let cultural stigmas and fearful circumstances to get in her way of trusting God. Though she's from Moab, she's now learned that her God, the true God, is with her everywhere she goes. Friends, notice also how she is the one taking the initiative. Naomi didn't command her to do this. She wanted to. Secondly, Ruth is willingly submissive to the God-ordained authorities in her life. Ruth is willingly submissive to the God-ordained authorities in her life. Ruth is described as a woman who takes initiative but still shows deference to Naomi's counsel and direction. Notice in verse 2, she expresses to Naomi what she wants to do, but she doesn't go until Naomi gives a thumbs up. Ruth is eager to work and gather food for her and Naomi, but she's not presumptuous. She's not an assertive maverick doing her own thing. She isn't an abrasive or nagging or manipulative or quarrelsome woman who says, don't tell me what I can and can't do. I'm called to this work. I'm called to this ministry. Or I'm called to fill in the blank. Get out of my way. That's not at all what we see in Ruth's eager, initiative-taking, risk-taking acts of faith. She's earnest, yes. She's a risk-taking, faith-filled woman, absolutely. Yet, Ruth is respectful of the authorities God has placed in her life. She's focused and determined, but she doesn't overstep her God-ordained boundaries. You can see there even in verse 7, where she has actually been in the field for some hours now, maybe even vast portions of the day, showing respect to the male reapers seeking permission to glean amongst the sheaves. I have found, through study of Scripture, and in the 37 years God has given me on earth, there are four different types of women in the world. Four different types of women in the world. Number one, there are women who don't fear God, and therefore they disdain his good design of gender and sexuality. They especially disdain God's good design for women in the home and the church. Turn on the television or I can send you blog posts. It's everywhere. Number two, there are women who seem like they fear God, but they try to reinterpret what God's word says about his good design for women in the home and the church. They typically try to do some theological gymnastics to try to come up with an alternative interpretation to passages that are actually pretty clear, like 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 13, or Ephesians 5, 22 to 24. Those passages speak about biblical male headship in the home and in the church. 
Perhaps women in this category have never received good teaching on this subject. They just don't know what they don't know. Then there is a third category. There's women who do fear God, but passive men or abusive men have caused them to be suspicious of male authority. They tend to be reluctant to trust male authority in several areas of their life. They affirm what the Bible teaches on God's good design of biblical male headship in the home and in the church, but deep down inside, they aren't truly happy about it. Maybe they just haven't seen good examples in their life, so they're afraid or anxious being around men in authority. Or I've even met sisters that think it's arbitrary. They'll obey it because it's in the Bible, but they just kind of tolerate it in their hearts. Then there's a fourth category of women. These are women who do fear God, and though they battle against their sinful flesh, like all Christians do, they are happy complementarians. They champion biblical male headship. They celebrate it with their words and their actions. When men step up and lead as God calls them to, these women actually thrive under their leadership. They grow under their leadership. They feel protected under their leadership. They feel shielded under their leadership. They feel cared for under their leadership. They feel loved and heard under their leadership. These women joyfully follow the biblical teaching of qualified men in the church leading the flock and in the home as husbands are heads of their families. Sisters, whichever character category describes you today, whichever one you might fall yourself into, one, two, three, or four, pray for one another. Just like I said, pray for the guys. Pray for us to be God's men everywhere we go, every detail, what we watch on TV, what we say in the workroom, all the time. We want to be God-saturated men, and we want to be God-saturated women women. Sisters, help one another study the scriptures on what God teaches on marriage, gender, and sexuality. If you don't teach it here, if we don't teach it here, they sure are not going to get it out there. And sisters, if you're like, well, I need resources. I need sermons. I want to look at this further. You, you know me, I, I probably text you too much with verses and resources, uh, but we would be happy as elders to give you resources for sisters to do that Titus 2 with one another. Older women teaching and training younger women to love their husbands, love their children, managing the household, being God-saturated women. And friends, please pray for the men once again. I realize I'm talking to churches often as a pastor throughout my life where it's majority women, and I have seen untold amounts of examples where the mama or the wife is at at church by themselves because dad or the husband's got the remote control at home. So I want to speak sensitively to you just briefly here. I understand if you come from an abusive home, a passive home, where the daddy was either absent or he was oppressive and domineering. If that's where you're at, we want CCBC to be a safe place for you. 
We want the elders to facilitate and cultivate a church culture that if daddy blew it, your husband's blown it, we can't be married to you, but we can love you in a fatherly and brotherly type way. We want every man in here to take part in making CCBC a safe place for all women. Friends, that's not me trying to like go woke on anybody. If you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. That's me just trying to be biblical. Men and women are created in the image of God. Men and women have been uniquely gifted for service in the church. Men and women are called to bear much fruit and so give God the glory. We want to be biblical in how we understand headship and authority and submission, and we want to be biblical in how we commend godly, virtuous women and godly, valiant men. Let's don't fall on either side of that ditch. And also, thirdly, I want to just say something. Ruth just is going to step on a lot of toes. Ruth is a woman, thirdly, who is hardworking, and she fulfills her commitments to others. She is hardworking, and she fulfills her commitments to others. Friends, this whole section screams that Ruth was a hardworking woman. She is willing to get her hands dirty and provide for Naomi's needs and her own. You can see that in verses 2 and 3, 6 and 7, 17 and 23. Brothers and sisters, working to provide for your family is a God-given responsibility, especially for those who are weak, dependent, and unable to provide for themselves. Here's a good text for you to think about, about providing for your family. And I think Ruth embodies it. 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And friends, we know that there are different providential hindrances that can keep people from working or simply being productive throughout a week and to be a blessing to others, like sickness, injury, handicap, the elderly, bad economy, struggling job market. But with all those qualifications off the table, Ruth is more manly than a third of men I know. I mean, if there's a good way to say she's a bad woman, in a good way, she's a bad woman. She rebukes by her actions the minimalistic, slothful, lazy work culture that America is laying in. Young woman from Moab putting herself in danger, submissive to God-ordained authorities, and she's a hard worker. She doesn't have negative attitudes about the goodness of work. She's not unrepentant with passivity, making excuses, being apathetic or lazy or wanting handouts. Friends, the Apostle Paul said some strong words about this. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 to 12. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Friends, let me ask you a question. You may or may not enjoy your job. 
but do you enjoy working hard? Do you enjoy putting your head on that pillow at night after a hard day's work and feeling some level of satisfaction? Well, if you don't, you don't work hard enough. Friends, we were made in the image of God, and we can't speak things into existence, but we were called to take dominion over the earth, which is work. Be productive. Use the life and body and talents we were given to show off him and to bless others. Friends, we want to be at CCBC known as a loving and a hardworking group of people. And Naomi, or Ruth rather, she's a woman of her word, isn't she? She told Ruth, I'm going to stick with you. Or told Naomi, I'm going to stick with you. And she's sticking with her. And then fourthly, the last thing to note about Ruth, she is humbled by the blessing and favor she has shown. She is humbled by the blessing and favor she has shown. How does she show her humility? Look at me at verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? You see, Ruth receives these blessings and favor and protection from Boaz. And she doesn't take him for granted. She realizes, I've never met a man like you. My husband's dead and gone. We're never even told what kind of man he was. I mean, their names were pretty pathetic. You can look at last week's sermon. She's looking at him like a diamond in the rough. And you would take notice of me? Me, a Moabite woman? Me, a young woman? Me, a nobody? You, out of all the people in this field, would take notice of me? Ruth doesn't feel entitled, does she? Ruth knows that she's a sinner. Ruth knows that she deserves nothing but calamity here and eternal calamity in hell. And when she sees favor and blessing and love being shown to her, she's seeing someone else through Boaz. She's seeing the steadfast love of Yahweh. All the memories of her sadness were probably bubbling up in her heart. All the memories of Naomi crying and weeping night after night after night after night. Elimelech's gone. Elimelech's gone. Malon's gone. Malon's gone. Kilion's gone. Kilion's gone. I'm bitter. God is out to get me. God is against me. I'm afraid. I don't know where to go. These women... They just need to leave and go while they can. And then all of a sudden, Ruth, all these memories, all these emotions are bubbling to the surface and she sees grace and favor and love and blessing from Boaz. But Boaz isn't done. Because he's a blessed man, he loves doing what? 
He loves lavishing these blessings. It goes on to say that Boaz orders men to protect her. In other words, he gets a SEAL Team 6 or CCBC security team, and they're appointed to her. Any creeps mess with you, sock them in the face. Boaz commissioned you to do it. So she's got an entourage. She came unprotected. Now she's super protected. Then she goes on, or Boaz goes on to order these young men to stock up the barley sheaves. Uh, you've, you've done good, Ruth, but oh, there's way more to come in this harvest. And, and I'm actually going to give you more than the average widow. I'm going to let you have the cream of the crop. You can see that there in verses 16 and 17. You know what's crazy? Boaz gets all these dudes, you know, if they had a trailer, but really a massive, massive bundle, 30 to 50 pounds of ephah barley, and get this, Ruth carries the thing all the way home. Guys, what another rebuke. Ladies, you don't have to work out in the gym. You don't have to build a barn. You don't have to wrestle a wild boar or bear. You don't have to swing a hammer. You don't have to have bulging biceps. But Ruth ain't no pushover. She's physically strong too. She threw that thing up on her shoulder and said, oh yeah, I got some barley. 30 to 50, I got it. Eventually Ruth makes it home. She's probably sweating, smelly tired, but she's back to Naomi's house. She walks through the door and puts that heavy, boom, bag of barley sheaves that Naomi probably goes, what was that? Naomi sees her face. She sees the bundles, and Naomi is stunned. Look at verses 18 to 20 with me. And she took it up and went to the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she took, so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours one of our redeemers. You see, like Ruth was in back in verse 10, Naomi now is overwhelmed with the grace and favor and blessing being shown to her through Boaz. After discovering that Boaz is a responsible man for blessing them generously, she informs Ruth, uh, honey, Boaz ain't just any man. You might need to sit on down I'm going to put some biscuits on the griddle. I just want to make sure you understand you didn't meet just any man. He isn't just any wealthy or kind man. He's someone to stick close to. He's someone you ought to start looking at. He's a close relative of ours. He's one of our family's redeemers. Now, we're going to pop open that box a bunch in chapters 3 and 4. Got to say something for those sermons. But why is that significant? Why is Naomi saying, pull up a chair, honey? He's more than what you think. 
Under the old covenant, a kinsman redeemer was obliged to buy back his relatives if they fell into debt and had to sell themselves into slavery. Leviticus 25. Under the certain circumstances, the kinsman redeemer also had an obligation to marry the widow and raise up a child for a brother who had died childless. Deuteronomy 25, 5-10. In this way, the inheritance would continue to be associated with the name of the man who had died. So two things are going on in Naomi's mind. She's a wise older woman. She's been around to know a good thing when she sees it and hears it. Naomi's catching on. That frowning providence is starting to have some sunlight shine through the clouds. And in the first time in a really long time, Naomi smiles. No more Mara. God's steadfast love and kindness is being shown to us through Boaz. You see, Boaz was a man who was obedient to the law of God, caring for the widow, caring for the poor, caring for the stranger by allowing them to glean from his field. Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. Leviticus 23, 22. And then secondly, Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. He's related to her deceased husband, which these texts of Scripture start rolling in her mind. In other words... He's an eligible bachelor. He could provide for you. He could provide for me. He could provide both of us a future. You see, friends, Boaz and Ruth are men and women we should pay attention to. Take notice of their virtue and their valiant character, and we should praise God when we see it in one another's lives. But friends, chapter 2 is more than simply paying attention to a man and a woman. Chapter 2 is inviting us to pay attention to the character of someone more trustworthy than either of them. And that is the character and care of the Lord. Which leads to our final point. Told you we'd get there. Point number three. We should place our ultimate trust in our redeeming God who gives us rest. We should place our ultimate trust in our redeeming God who gives us rest. So how did this whole, have y'all remember this statement before? I had a divine appointment today. It's just like a super spiritual way of saying, I met someone and we had a good conversation. It's just something that got really popular in the 90s and it probably needs to be flushed down the toilet. But anyway, how did Ruth and Boaz have this divine appointment? Look back with me in verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Did you catch that? She happened to come. Just by chance, she came to the right place at the right time and met the right person. It just happened. Notice at first the ordinary means by which God leads Ruth to meet Boaz. There are no visions, no dreams, no prophets, no inner voices, no casting fleece, no magic eight ball, no horoscopes, no flipping coins, no sign chasers going on, no one listening to Delilah on the radio. No. 
just ordinary acts of everyday life, of faith, courage, working hard, do the next thing, plot along, be a man, a woman of integrity, and keep God on the forefront of your minds. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will what? Make straight your paths. But friends, as Christians, we should not view circumstances as coincidence, chance, luck, or accident. The narrator wrote, it just happened to provoke us. The whole book is screaming. Nothing happens by accident or chance. It's to provoke us in our unbelief. We think that was meaningless. That was a coincidence. That was just a chance. That was just happenstance. Baloney. The book of Ruth goes, what we think is just a circumstance or a happenstance is God setting the dinner table to show off what he can do. Think about it. Ruth made plans to go and work in the field. Naomi gave a thumbs up to those plans. The reapers informed Boaz about Ruth and her backstory and testimony. Boaz takes uh, takes notice of her integrity, her love, her character, Ruth is then overwhelmed by Boaz's kindness, and Naomi is overwhelmed by the providence of God. Friends, Proverbs 16.9. If you don't have it memorized, you need to. Proverbs 16.9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Brothers and sisters, God works through his people in ordinary ways to accomplish his plans in extraordinary ways. Though we don't know why we run into certain people at times we least expect, though we don't know why God allowed or doesn't allow certain opportunities to happen, we do know who is guarding and guiding with his perfect wisdom and love. That is God, the Lord God Almighty. God's footsteps may appear unseen to us, but his footsteps are seen and sure to him. You see, friends, Ruth is not the main actress of this story. Boaz is not the main actor of this story. Friends, they're just extras. God orchestrating it all. He is the main attraction. He's just using Ruth and Boaz to display something of what he is like. Friends, do you know who Ruth was ultimately trusting in in that field? Do you want to know who is truly valiant, strong, mighty, safe, protective, generous, gracious, and trustworthy? Look at verse 12. Look what Boaz says back to Ruth. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Wings here is just a poetic way of saying that God cares and protects for his own. God cares and protects those who belong to him. Boaz is reassuring Ruth not simply of his love for her, but of God's love for her. Boaz is just an instrument in God's hand. And friends, we too can learn something here. We should surround ourselves with virtuous and valiant men and women. 
We should choose leaders to follow, bosses to work for, and friends to be close to whose convictions, whose decisions, and whose character are marked by trustworthiness. Oh, but friends, do not make the mistake of worshiping a man or woman over worshiping God. Only the Lord can guide you perfectly in this life. Only the Lord can give you comfort and rest for your weary soul. Only the Lord can redeem us from the curse of sin and cover us with his wings of love. What did Jesus say in Matthew 11? Come to me. Come to me. All who labor in are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Not a husband, not a pastor, not a wife, not any human being, but Jesus. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is life. Oh, do you catch on what's going on here? Boaz offered Ruth not just bread to eat, but he gave her and Naomi a future and a hope and a protection by his ability to redeem them. Jesus offers us in himself, out of the fullness of who he is, eternal life, adoption into his kingdom, and eternal inheritance that can't be taken from us. Even in times of loss in this life, Jesus can repay from his own fullness all he takes away. Boaz revived Boaz invited Ruth to go to the vessels and drink water that the young men had drawn. Come here and eat some bread over me with, the, with me over a meal. Jesus says, come, taste and see that I am good. Receive me by faith as the living water and bread from heaven. Jesus said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In love, friends, Jesus did something that Boaz could have never done. Jesus, who was rich, the king of heaven, became poor. Thrones and dominions to a stable floor. And in love, he offered himself to redeem us from our sin against this good God. Jesus bore the judgment we deserve for our sin. And three days later, God raised him from the dead. And when Jesus says, come to me, he's saying, find refuge under my wings. Are you a sinner in need of covering? Come to his wings. Are you scared and afraid of the future? Find refuge in his wings. Are you wondering why God took someone or something away from you? Come under his wings and from his own fullness, he will repay what he has taken away. Chapter one ended with a committed young widow sticking close with her grieving and embittered mother-in-law. Chapter 2 ends with two widows who are now overwhelmed with God's blessings, humbled by God's favor, and utterly amazed by God's sovereign providence. 
Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Friends, who are you ultimately putting your trust in today? Would God approve of the people you've chosen to trust? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we do ask that you would bless the preaching of your word, that the seed of your word has fallen amongst good soil and that it will bear much fruit, not just today, not just this week, but maybe even beyond our own lifetime. Lord, we pray for all of us here. We'll be reminded that whatever we're facing in our life, whether it's sin or suffering, distrust or brokenness, or that we can find refuge under your wings. Lord, we love you and we praise you that we have a wonderful redeemer in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, we pray that would be our song even now. In Jesus' name, amen.